1: What are the top things to look for if you're identifying a psychopath?
0: Lack of empathy, lack of remorse, need to control, narcissistic, and greedy.
1: Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet, a criminologist, a lecturer at the University of Newcastle, and I have expertise in forensic science.
0: And I'm Tim watson Munro, a criminal psychologist with over 40 years of experience at the coalface.
1: Over the past 10 episodes, we've covered everything from some of the largest homicide cases in domestic settings from male and female perpetrators. We've unpacked and explored the way the legal system serves certain individuals. And we've also explored how institutional power plays a key role in keeping certain crimes swept under the rug and explored the ramifications for future victims when it comes to speaking out. But one thing we haven't done much of is spoken to our own stories and experiences. Throughout the last season, you had many questions about our work and who we are, what it means to be a criminal psychologist or a criminologist, and that's what we'll be doing today. We want to answer all of your burning questions, so let's get into it. So, Tim, first question for you What made you want to become a criminal psychologist?
0: I wanted to become a criminal psychologist because I'd always had an interest in people and crime. I used to watch Perry Mason as a kid. Great sort of lawyer show. It sort of went from there. So I did a master's degree in psychology at Sydney University. Jobs were very thin on the ground then. I was living with a law student. She found this ad in the Telegraph or the Sydney Morning Herald and she said, look, there's a job going at Parramatta Jail. You should throw your hat in the ring. I thought I had no chance at all, but I did, and I went for the interview. I got the job. Extraordinary. I was 25 years old. Worst jail in Australia. So out of that, I set up a number of programs, and one of the most prominent ones was the Day in Jail Program for Juvenile Offenders. Young kids spent a day in jail under supervision. They saw what they were headed towards if they didn't stop stealing cars and stealing milk money and everything they did back in the 70s. We got onto the Mike Walsh show. So there was me and then two prisoners who were part of the program. As it turned out, Mike Walsh was sick that day. We had Jimmy Hannon. It's a funny story. He he asked each of the guys why they were in jail. One guy said, well, I killed my wife. The other guy said, I'm in for armed robbery. And then he said to me, <laughs> and what about you, Tim? Why are you in jail? <laughs> and
1: why why were you in jail, Tim? I said, because I'm
0: working there as a psychologist, Jimmy. And he and this is live ad on break. television. It's live oh. to the sort of, you know, the, the grey the gray marching people, you know, the wow. uh, people I've become. So out of that program, we got a lot more press. I was then invited to give a paper at a conference in Melbourne. I met an eminent forensic psychiatrist. He said, you should come and work with me. You'll learn a lot and you've got a lot of capacity and experience. And I said, look, I'm flattered, but I live in Balmain. I didn't want to move to Melbourne, but he started referring me work, and uh, it's always the case, isn't it? I was seduced by the money. I didn't think I'd go for as long as I have. I've got a curly question for you, Zanth. What made you want to become a criminologist?
1: That is a great question. So I am a forensic scientist by training. That's what my PhD is in: forensic human identification. So. I was doing that work and we'd become involved in cases where people have been accused of child sexual abuse. And we had a number of different cases. A lot of those were image-based cases. So people whose mobile phones were collected as part of a warrant or their computer and indecent images of children were on those, those devices. And the question police had for us as forensic anthropologists, so those specializing in human identification, was, is the person who owns the phone or computer the same person that's in the images? And to do that, we had to start looking at superficial elements. Often it was hands in the images actually abusing the children. So we would look at freckle patterns, tenderness, intertenderness connections, knuckle creases, scars, all these different features to try and determine if the person in the images could be the person who owned the phone or if they were simply holding them and potentially distributing them. The charges are very different in those cases. And as a result of all of that, I got really interested in the mechanisms for distribution. You know, you've got these these child sex offender networks on the internet, they're seeking each other out, they're identifying those of the same mindset. And that really piqued my interest, how these groups of often men are communicating and how they're kind of seeking out those safe relationships to share these images. And so I got more interested in the behavioural side of things. Then I moved to Australia in 2017, and I had the opportunity to take a lectureship in criminology. So I kind of moved my career sideways at that moment from the straight forensics into the behavioural sciences of criminology. So now I get to combine the two. I still work in forensic science and human identification and combine that with the behavioural sciences. And people often think that that's two very different things, but to me if you're going to understand how a crime happens and how a scene or evidence may present, you need to understand how the people interact with that scene and that evidence. So it's the hard science and the behavioural science coming together. And I think that that's what I particularly enjoy is that combination. So I know you started your career in Parramatta Jail. You abandoned Balmain though, when you got a good offer to go and work in Melbourne. What have you done as a criminal psychologist since then?
0: Many, many things. So I worked with a forensic psychiatrist, Dr David Syme. Tragically died, you know, about 30 years ago now. We set up other sorts of programs. And in addition, I was offered a lectureship at Philip Institute, which is now RMIT, And so I combined the academic work with the practical work. He was a forensic psychiatrist. I learned a lot from him. I would sit in on sessions. He would critique what I was doing. Through the academic work, we had a lot of police coming through in the Bachelor of Criminal Justice program. So I came to know police, who then became very senior police. And through this kind of academic involvement and the work that I did, my reputation grew. Probably the biggest case for me was the Hoddle Street Massacre. Yeah. Well publicised. Julian Knight killed a lot of people in Hoddle Street back in 1987. That was another case that enhanced my career. And then I had other cases that went on from there. At one point I was involved on an advisory board at Melbourne University. We set up the first forensic doctorate program, professional forensic doctorate program in psychology in Australia, I believe, and I then was a visiting fellow at Melbourne University, lecturing to those forensic doctorate students on the psychological assessment of offenders. I've also worked as an adjunct visiting professor at Bond University years ago, and I was on advisory board there as well. So I've really had a very eclectic career.
1: So maybe a better question would have been then, what haven't you done? <laughs>
0: I haven't written a Harley Davidson.
1: That's next. Hmm. I'm loving this question. So, Tim, how, if you were on a dating app, would you recognise a sociopath?
0: Well, firstly, I've never been on one. Uh uh But secondly, I I think it would be difficult. It would depend on the responses that people give to your questions. I mean, sociopaths, psychopaths, they're interchangeable. These days, people talk about antisocial personality disordered people. You look for narcissism. You look for a lack of empathy. So, how
1: would that show, though? Like, what, what kind of, what would people give away on these apps? Do you reckon that would make it's all that, about
0: them and right. not about you?
1: So, they're the red flags if they only want to talk about them.
0: Only want to talk about them. Um, they may have no interest in your life. You, you know, your mother may have died, and they'll brush over and then keep talking about themselves.
1: Say, so what about the love bombing?
0: Well, plenty of that. They, so, they fall in love very quickly. They want to own you. They want to see you all the time. And I guess some sociopaths don't put up real photographs of themselves. I've certainly had examples of that, not personally. Uh-huh. but you women You keep saying women, that. Women, women have told me about being on uh-huh. dating apps and guys have put up, you know, photographs of Adonis's and they go to meet them and they're, you know, the antithesis of all that. Okay. So, you know, dishonesty, I think, is the, the key word here. I'll ask the same question. As a criminologist and yeah. forensic scientist, how do you spot a sociopath on a dating app
1: Well, I actually talk to my students about this quite a lot because, you know, they're of that generation. This is how a lot of people are meeting people nowadays. And I guess some of the red flags for me would be things like, you know, people who only want to talk about themselves. They're really pushy, very, some kind of controlling behaviors initially, very early on, highly flattering, you know, just trying to win you over, trying to kind of buy your attention, all those things that can feel really good.
0: Big egos. Big
1: egos, yeah. And people who are just kind of trying to show off. I think you're looking for somebody who's genuine, who's honest. And so, yeah, just get to know them a little bit, try and ask some probing questions, and then if it feels a little bit off, I would say stay away because there's lots of fake on these apps, and Mm. some of them are dangerous.
0: Very dangerous. I mean, a woman a week is killed in Australia. Not through dating apps necessarily, but it is a minefield out there.
1: It is an absolute minefield. And, you know, for people who are going on these dating apps, if you're going to meet somebody, meet them in public, tell people where you're going, don't go off with them alone, that kind of thing, just be sensible because you don't really know who you're meeting. So And
0: listen to your gut.
1: Gut instinct.
0: So if they start love-bobbing you, sending you, you know, flowers every day wanting to know where you are, bail. <laughs> True crime is a growth industry. Can you shed any light on emerging trends in true crime from a criminologist's point of view? In terms
1: of true crime, what I'm seeing as the emerging trends in podcasts but also on the news and discussions, those kind of water cooler moments, certainly DV is a big one, domestic and family violence. A lot of people are talking about that. Obviously the case of Hannah Clark in Queensland a, a few months ago now that really that really brought it to the fore. So a woman who was estranged from her husband, three children in the car, the estranged husband, there was an AVO out, he came and set light to the car, killed the mother, the three children, and then he suicided. And so that was a case that I think really shocked the nation. And I think it's caused a lot of discussion. Other things, there's a lot of discussion around youth crime at the moment, again, because some of the issues in some of the states and territories, knife crime, Which is growing, you know, more young people carrying knives, carrying machetes. How do we manage that situation? So I think that's a big thing. And also, sex crimes, you know, the Me Too movement was massive, but that's led to some further generation of discussions. And I think it's around that kind of area of misogyny and how men engage and treat women in all sorts of walks of life where there's an imbalance of power. So I think those are some of the really big topics, especially the ones I'm discussing with my students.
0: Does that include boardroom dynamics?
1: It includes all of it. Everywhere where there's a hierarchy of power, (laughs) there will be abuse of that power.
0: Hmm.
1: And so those are some of the things we're kind of unpacking. How do we break that down? How do we get over some of those obstacles and prevent some of these situations from happening? Tim, can you tell me a little bit about the overcrowding that we see in Australian jails and what impact that may have on the inmates and also just the general workings and maybe dysfunctions of the criminal justice system.
0: We're shoveling people into jails like there's no tomorrow at the moment. It's having a telling impact on prison populations. I don't like the analogy, but you look at studies that have been done with rats and you put them in overcrowded situations, they become aggressive, hostile more antisocial and so on. Now, those dynamics are also in play in a lot of jails that are overcrowded now. So instead of having one person to a room, you might have three people to a room. It imposes restrictions on your capacity to access treatment or rehabilitation. And I'm continuously hearing from people in prison that they've waited six to 12 months to see a psychologist, for example. When I worked in the prisons, you know, I had to almost bribe people to... Come and see me. There was a a kind of cultural thing where you didn't speak to the prison shrink. You didn't do it. Now everyone wants to do it and there's not enough resources because too many people are in jail. So that can lead to increased frustration, increased competition for resources and out of that inevitably increased violence, increased substance use, increased potential for drug use, increased corruption out of the drugs, get into the jail and so on. And I think a lot of this stuff can be titrated back to overcrowding because it's much harder to manage a larger population. So we've had an interesting question from a defence paralegal, criminal defence paralegal, about how do you cope with the trauma, I guess the vicarious trauma, the work that you do as a criminologist and as a criminal psychologist. So over to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people ask me that question and it's actually something that I talk to my students about a lot because many of them want to go and join the police. They want to be psychologists. They want to be lawyers working with victims of crime. They want to work in the corrective system. So they will come across a lot of trauma. So it's something we talk about frequently throughout Mm -hmm. the course. And they always ask me how I cope. I'm very lucky in that I've always been good at compartmentalizing. So I can go to work and I can do a forensic case or I can do a criminal, work on a, look at a criminal case in detail. And then I can go home. And I don't take it with me. I don't think about it. I don't dream about it. But it's not something that haunts me. And I just have ways of shutting it down. Like I love going out with my dog and I like training. I like running and rowing. And that that's time for me to take time out of work. And it's like it clears my brain out. And that's, I think, what keeps me centered. And it's really important to have, I think, things that take you out of that professional space and give you that gap the air because otherwise I think you could get suffocated by some of the horrendous things that we have to see. How do you feel?
0: I agree with all of that. I think with the work I do and I ignored this for decades but I now have professional supervision. I speak to a highly qualified competent clinical psychologist about the cases I'm doing and I guess in a broader sense how those cases impacting upon me. I've done some very big cases in this country very traumatic cases that have traumatised the nation at times. And so, you know, you need to recognise if you're a psychologist that you have to debrief on this. You have to work out what it's all about and how it's impacting upon you. I'm now pretty good at compartmentalising as well, having a separate life. I think when I was a younger bloke, I sort of, you know, my whole identity was centred around the work I did. It's not anymore. When I have children, I have other adult children. I have interests, I have good friends like you, people I talk to. I think it's important to put some distance between the work you do and your other life. What role does the field of criminology play in uncovering unlawful, wrongful convictions?
1: The field of criminology has a huge impact in uncovering wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice. And obviously we've spoken about some of those on the podcast and I've been working in this space for a number of years now and I've written a book about this as well because it's been a passion of mine for a long time but in terms of what criminologists do generally um, at the university of newcastle we actually have a justice clinic which i established and its sole purpose is to look at miscarriages of justice and potential wrongful convictions we also look at long-term missing persons cases and cases where police have potentially misclassified deaths so a family may be dissatisfied if a death has been ruled a suicide and we will review that So as a group of students and their law students, psychology students, largely, and criminology students, we monitor them in those groups. They work on cases and when they go right back to the beginning and they unpack those and look for fresh and compelling evidence or if it's in a potential wrongful conviction case, we work with our client who's incarcerated to see if there's anything legally that can be done to overturn their conviction if we believe that's the way forward. And that's, I guess, my way of training the next generation of criminologists and psychologists and lawyers to have a very justice focus. And so they will go out into the world and work in all of those areas of corrections or police or wherever they may go, and they will take that justice focus with them. Mm. And so that's they can then do a better job next time. So they may be the police of the future who won't be getting tunnel vision, who won't be ignoring you know, exculpatory evidence. So criminologists like me can train the next generation and hopefully there will be less miscarriages of justice and wrongful convictions as a result of some of the experiences that I and my colleagues at the University of Newcastle can provide them. So I have some questions that my students ask me a lot and I'd be really interested in your take on those and one of them is... For people who have been either in a coercive relationship themselves or their parents have been in a coercive relationship, so it's become normalised for them, are they doomed to go on and either become a perpetrator of coercive control or seek that kind of dysfunction out as they go forward in their own relationships? They're fearful what impact that normalisation will have on them.
0: It's a good question and certainly you can get systemic dynamics occurring across generations. I think how you guard against that is being aware of the red flags, being aware of the history of your family, taking note of what went on between mum and dad or in previous relationships and learning from that experience. So it gets back to love bobbing, coercive control, attempts to isolate you from your friends and family and the former associates at work and so on. And
1: so look for that behaviour in themselves as well to make sure that they're not replicating what they grew up with.
0: Correct. Yeah. So both as a as a survivor of that and a potential perpetrator of that, they need to pull themselves up. They need to hold the mirror up and say, wait a minute, is this like Dad used to do or is this like Mum used to do?
1: I do have faith though in that if they're asking me that question, they're already aware of that danger of potentially seeking out dysfunction themselves. And so I think it's about that, isn't it? It's self-awareness, knowing what to look for and just being mindful of some of those behaviours in yourself and other people.
0: I think that's right, but I think there's generally a greater awareness of this. As we've discussed, you know, domestic violence is a red-hot topic. One woman a week is killed in Australia through domestic violence. The role of social media is a very important one in terms of educating people. And, of course, Netflix shows, stand shows, you know, true crime shows that depict what happens to people is both good for the survivor and the potential offender if they have insight from my experience, the problem with potential offenders is they often lack insight and they often lack motivation because they're so fragile or so driven by the need to control others, they don't care if they're like that.
1: Another question my students ask me a lot, either because they're, they're fearful for themselves or people who, you know, they, they other relationships they're aware of, is that coercive control and what red flags to look for. So they are trying to see these dangers before they become persistent and problematic. So what are the key red flags these young people should be looking for in their own relationships?
0: Frequent phone calls. Where were you? i tried to ring you. I want to look through your phone. Who are you talking to? Why do you need to go and see your family? I don't like your family. If you really cared about me, you'd stay with me rather than going to see people you don't, that I don't like and so on. So it starts very early. It escalates, and I've used this analogy many times. It's a bit like cooking frogs. You know, you put them in cold water and gradually turn the temperature up. They don't realise when they're cooked. And it can work like this in relationships, particularly coercively controlling relationships.
1: So we're talking there control, trying to stop you seeing people, jealousy and isolation. That's the other thing, cutting you off from friends and family.
0: Because then there's no external point of reference. And the flip to that is family can't intervene. I've often heard from family members, we're very worried about Bill or Sally, but we never hear from them. We know what's going on, but they're so brainwashed now that we can't actually say anything about it because we are part of the problem if we do that.
1: Another question that my students ask regularly, and people actually email me about this quite a lot as well. What? At what stage do you intervene in a relationship? We all know, I guarantee if you think about your friends and family, we all know someone whose relationship we're a bit uncomfortable with. You think there may be an element of control there. Maybe it's just started. Maybe it's something that's been ongoing and you're just watching kind of on the sidelines thinking, do I just need to hang around and pick up the pieces when this all you know, goes to crap?
0: Well, the pieces can often be a cadaver. You know, that's the problem. Well, that's the
1: problem from my perspective. I know how bad this can go. And they ask me, at what stage do I say something? What stage do I try and raise it with my friend or my sister or whoever it is? What is that tipping point? How do you know when it's gone too far?
0: Well, it's very difficult because every situation is unique in its own way. And it's also potentially dangerous for the intervener. I've had cases where people have tried to intervene. They've been shot. So you have to tread delicately but sooner than later i think is the mantra you know the sooner you pick up on it before it becomes well entrenched and the other uh, and your friend becomes well enmeshed in this type of toxic relationship but it's
1: a very difficult conversation to have and because because the person in that relationship may actually have no idea at that point they're being coercively controlled and they're in
0: love or they're in lust or whatever it is and you're nothing but a troublemaker, just like yep. my parents. To
1: them, I think they don't see the signs that their friends and family will see first and start to pick up on. And ultimately, it can become dangerous for that person if you raise that as well. So it's a. I find that a really difficult question to answer, but I think you have to go again with your gut and have that quiet conversation. Is there a problem? Do you need help?
0: Well, I guess, you know, as I say, each case is different, but you want to be satisfied, I think, that, you did all you could do in the circumstances, it may cost you the friendship. They may think that you're intervening and you're, you're kind of not minding your own business enough. They may ditch you, which feeds into the coercive control of the perpetrator. But the flip side to that is you say nothing, the person gets bashed up or killed. How's it going to sit with you if you do, if you say nothing? As a criminologist, you have a view on psychopathic bosses <laughs> and... Yeah. What can you do to protect yourself against them?
1: Well, as somebody who works in both academia and the media and with a lot of police, yeah, I know all about psychopaths in positions of power at work. I've actually, not naming names, but I've actually had somebody very senior to me who I firmly believe was a psychopath who bullied everybody, everyone was fearful. He just attacked, attacked, attacked. Yeah, and it was a very difficult situation and a very unpleasant workplace to start with. You know me, I'm a bit of a battler, So you've got a number of choices, haven't you? The fight, flight, or freeze, right? That's your options, Mm. isn't it? You can just ignore it and keep your head down, right? You can freeze and just kind of like disappear into the shadows and just let him do whatever he or she is ever going to do. It's not always men. Mine was to fight. And so I took him on because they're bullies at the Mm. end of the day. And things did change in my workplace. When they were bullying me, I pushed back, and because they're ultimately cowards, they ended up leaving that workplace. It worked out well for me. It doesn't always, and I'm certainly not advocating that for everybody because it doesn't always go that way. I was lucky in that I had some great support in that workplace that was senior to me and to them, but it's very difficult. It's It's a really tough position to be in, and sadly, a lot of people end up moving workplaces because often you can't win that battle when you're junior, and that's wrong. But that's sometimes the safest way to go because it has such a huge detrimental impact on people's psychology. One of my very good friends became so traumatised from the bullying, she couldn't come in the building.
0: I've seen it also where people have been in very powerful positions and there's been a restructuring of the board and you might have been the chief executive or the managing director. They bring in a new CEO or MD who then makes it their life statement to bully you out of the job because they're threatened by you. And it's very interesting. A lot of companies don't have appropriate interventions for that. There's no playbook on how to deal with it. And as you say, from my observations, a lot of those people leave because they freeze up, they get they vomit in the mornings, thinking about having to go into work, which is a terrible thing when you think about it. Thanks so much for your questions. If you enjoyed this and want more of these, you can always submit a question to our Instagram at Motive and Method and we'll aim to do more of these to unpack your burning questions. Until then, I'm Tim watson munroe
1: I'm Xanthi Mallet.
0: Thank you.